Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 27th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Today's guest roster opens with Krista Hollinger, Chief Operating Officer of Planned Parenthood Orange in San Bernardino counties to cover what is at stake regarding reproductive public health care infrastructure in the moment we are in. And in the second segment, Stephanie Campbell will speak about the seven statewide propositions in her capacity as a volunteer for the League of Women Voters Speakers Bureau. Let's start this show now. My first guest is Krista Hollinger, Chief Operating Officer, Planned Parenthood, Orange and San Bernardino Counties. This is our local branch. It's the second largest Planned Parenthood affiliate in the country, folks, covering nine health centers throughout Orange and San Bernardino Counties with comprehensive reproductive care and primary care services. Krista Hollinger will have much to say about the moment we are in regarding reproductive public health care going into the 2022 midterm elections, November 8. Keep marking your calendars, folks. Krista's 20 years of experience include serving as chief administrative officer for obstetrics and gynecology at UCI's medical school and Chief Administrative Officer there in the Hematology and Oncology at UCI, and as also Ambulatory Practice Manager for St. Jude's Heritage Healthcare. Krista Hollinger completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Urban Studies and Planning at UC San Diego and her Master's in Public Health at UCLA. She comes to us, I believe it's from your office there in City of Orange, Krista Hollinger? Yes, well, we're we're in Anaheim now. Oh well, oh, she, oh, that's right. I've got, I got, I, pandemics yeah, just we, get in the way of know. you know moving things. Absolutely, yeah. There, we've been been in a, in a time warp, haven't we? Yeah, we. Um, yeah, I'm out of my office in Anaheim. Okay, so I, therefore, welcome to Ask a Leader, Krista Hollinger. Hi, thank you, Claudia. Thank you for having me this morning. Well, apropos the Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling. I would like the, you know, I'm going to start with the heavy stuff. I mean, it's not going to get unheavy, folks. I'd like for you, Krista, to examine this asymmetry of the people opposing choice, the asymmetry of their long game. I want to know how does Planned Parenthood keep your long game out there in front of the public to maintain and restore access to reproductive health services, since we're no longer just talking about abortion services? Well, at Planned Parenthood of Orange and San Bernardino counties, Claudia, our mission is unchanged. We remain committed to providing women and men the highest quality of care for a range of reproductive health services, as you point out, in a compassionate and judgment-free environment. And you're correct, Claudia, the opposition has had a long game. Really, ever since Roe was first decided and abortion was recognized as a constitutional right nearly 50 years ago, You know, while there was a constitutional right in this country, the opposition has been chipping away at that right, limiting access to abortion for millions of women throughout this country, um, really through a myriad of restrictions at the state and local levels. We've had 48-hour waiting periods, requirements to view ultrasound images, uh, burdensome and unnecessary requirements for physicians licensing at hospitals. And so, as a result, really prior to the Dobbs decision in June, 85% of counties in this country did not have an abortion provider. So as an organization, Planned Parenthood has been working to maintain women's access to abortion, really despite all of 
the opposition's attempts to limit it, limit it for decades, even when we had Roe in place. And that has been our long game and will continue to be so. But as you point out, we do provide a spectrum of reproductive health services. And abortion isn't important, but it is a small percentage of, of what we do. And we do want the public to know about all of the services that we provide and the education. You know, the opposition has made it very clear that despite Roe falling, they're not done. And as of today, we have 17 states in this country with bans in place and anticipate that it will grow to about 26 in the coming months. That's, you know, over half the states. And the ultimate plan is a federal ban, which would supersede any of the state protections, which is terrifying and what we're really fighting to avoid. And we know that the majority of Americans do not support that. Okay. So... How much then, with all this going on, how much energy and resources is Planned Parenthood putting into improving literacy about the many reasons women have abortions? And I've mentioned it, but you're the one I get to ask about this literacy that men, that is elected individuals, journalists, activists, they show a glaring lack of understanding about the complications of pregnancy. And I'm going to make a provocational point. This is my point. Women know more about erectile dysfunction than men know about pregnancies. <laughs> so, and, and it's no snark. I mean, and that asymmetry, that's another asymmetry. That just, it's just unbearable. So how, how, we, how does Planned Parenthood then target men in school and broader public ed- education to bring them along about wh- how complicated pregnancy is. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really good question, and I'll I'll get back to the men here in a moment. But you were um, also asking about you know the the literacy and, and all the reasons that women have abortion. I think it's a it's a really good question. You know, sharing women's stories is really important. And for every abortion we provide, there's a woman with a story, a story of a woman with her family, her desire to have children, her goals for education and career, her personal circumstances that make continuing her pregnancy impossible for her. And so, yeah, there are so many reasons why women seek an abortion. And Planned Parenthood, as an organization, has been encouraging women to tell their personal stories. You know, as with storytelling in general, the human impact is powerful, and in many ways it normalizes abortion, reminding us that abortion is basic health care. You know, one in four women will have had an abortion in their lifetime, and we all know someone who has, even if we do not know who those women are. But that said, as an abortion provider, the why is not important to us. You know, we provide care to our patients without judgment. And, you know, you were, you were bringing up uh, men's health issues. I think about how we don't go around asking people why they chose to have a pacemaker put in, or we don't ask women if, if she's on birth control and why did she choose the method that she chose. I mean, it would be rude, and a lot of times it would just be silly, right, to ask these questions. So though it's important to normalize abortion and hearing all the many reasons women seek um seek them, it's equally important that we remember that healthcare decisions are private and personal, and they don't need to be justified. So, um, so to your question about men, you know, men matter. And, you know, I was remembering that at our, we had a rally for reproductive rights earlier this year, and California State Senator Dave Min was there, and he spoke about this topic, and it was really inspiring to me. He had men at the rally stand up, 
there were a lot of men, actually, and he thanked them for being there and supporting this movement. And Senator Min asked men to commit to supporting this cause, but to do so by following the lead of women. And as a male political figure, his support is especially huge, but his message to men was equally important. And it really got me thinking, and I asked men around me who confirm that men have not always known how to see, have a seat at this table. I mean, as, as you say, they, they don't know the complications of pregnancy or what it feels like to be pregnant or to make that decision. But they definitely are affected by the, the laws and the regulations that we have about abortion in this country. You know, pregnancy and childbirth do not impact them physically. So I think that there's been this sense among men that they support women's rights, many, but they don't want to be an interfering in something that they do not know anything about. And so the reality, though, is reproductive rights is a human rights issue. An individual woman's ability to control her body and her future absolutely is a personal right of her own. But collectively, the right to make healthcare decisions for ourselves and plan our futures impacts all of us as a society, women and men. And I was thinking about, like, the male partners of women in Texas, these women who are now having to travel out of state to have their abortion. And they have male partners, and they, are, they are also are impacted by that. They might be helping them try to make the travel arrangements, finding child care for the kids who's, who are home um, because their mom had to travel. You know, and there are men in my life who are outraged about the Dobbs decision because they have female partners, daughters, sisters, and the thought that strangers are telling those women in their lives what they can and cannot do is infuriating to these men. So men are indeed impacted by this decision, and we need to make space for them to support our efforts. And I like how State Senator Min really called men to action on that, but by really by letting women continue to lead, you know, to, to follow our lead on this. Well, the irony is infuriating to me is that talking about men having a seat at the table, well, they they were half of the zygote. So it's sort of like, I just, <laughs> I can't understand why they're bowing out of this role in this whole, this whole discussion, this, how we got here. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Krista Hollinger. She's the Chief Operating Officer of Planned Parenthood of Orange and San Bernardino Counties. And we're talking in this post-Dobbs world. We live in California. You've already answered my the stack of my questions. You've talked about the this Tell Your Story campaign, how it's engaging voters. So I would like to let's move into a different story, the stories of people that whom are traveling from the other states just to I mean to get an abortion including what you can say about the role both of the UC system and planned parenthood in keeping out of state providers up to speed on performing all kinds of abortion services yes you know in california we're really uh, doing the heavy lifting i will say throughout the state um, as i mentioned there are 17 states that have bans in this country right now, and that number's growing. And it's really every day, you know, we're having to, to check and see sort of um, what the what the restrictions are. And so, but our, our doors are open, Planned Parenthood throughout California, and our affiliate here in Orange and San Bernardino counties. We started planning for this. Really, the, the writing was on the wall last September, first when Texas did their six-week ban, and they were the first state to really start to test this, test the waters on this. And we immediately started seeing patients from Texas 
last September. And then, of course, when the Dobbs decision was being heard, in, um, when that case was being, not the decision, when the case was being heard in front of the Supreme Court in the fall, the writing was on the wall with the way that those questions were going. And so we hoped we were wrong, but we knew, you know, that this was probably going to be the undoing of Roe. And all of that said, uh, we were not shocked in June, but we were devastated. And we are devastated because of the true impact that it is having on women. And we see that. We started an abortion aid program to really organize our efforts. We stepped up to increase our abortion capacity. We've doubled our, our appointment slots. And we've hired a patient navigator uh, whose sole job is to help women from out of state with their travel arrangements, uh, coordinating their appointments. Um, We really work to create a seamless system so we can ensure that our out-of-state patients have the resources they need. We're supporting, we're we're paying for travel, um, travel costs, gas cards, hotels, and really trying to um, to be, you know, as available to them as we are for our patients here in California and providing the most compassionate care that they can get. You know, on the day that the decision um, came down on June 24th, it was a Friday, and I was on a on a call with Clem Heronids throughout the country, and I'll, I'll just share that okay. it was so... It was so difficult because we had physicians from around the country who... You know, their administrators were coming in that day and saying, you got to stop, you know, no more, no more abortions today. And, you know, they were, they were tearful. And these are our, our physicians who have spent their professional careers, they've trained, and they've, you know, dedicated their careers to helping women. And to be told that they can't do that is, is really devastating for them. Um, and we had women who were sitting in, in Planned Parenthood in Arizona on that Friday who, who had appointments, and they called us. I remember one woman called us and said, I, I don't know what happened. I, I have an abortion scheduled today, and they, they just came into the lobby and said that someone made a decision, and, and I can't have it now, and it's illegal, but I, I can go to California. And, uh, and we had four women from Arizona just that weekend that we were able to get in. Um, and since the decision, we've seen over 100 women from out of state, mostly from Texas and Arizona, uh, and we have, you know, provided abortion services to them and, as I said, you know, helped them with travel as well. But, you know, I'm reminded that behind that statistic, right, so behind the statistic of 100-plus women who have come to us in just the last couple months, those are women, and they have families, and they have jobs, and they have lives back home. I think of the woman from Texas. She'd never been on a plane before, and she had to ask her sister to help her make the plane reservation because she didn't know how. And she arrived at our health center after taking a flight, and then she took a ride share, and she didn't have anything packed to stay the night. So our staff rallied, and they provided her with a Visa gift card so she could get food and she could get toiletries, and we set her up with a hotel room. And I just think about imagine being in a hotel room by yourself, in another state, you know, you just took your first flight, not for a vacation, but to get a healthcare procedure. And there are more than likely hundreds of physicians in your state, you know, tens in your city that are trained and want to help you and could provide the service to you. And because of laws, we're told that they could not do it. Not because of science, but because of laws, we're told that they, that they couldn't provide that. And so then you had to get on that flight and stay in a hotel in another state. I mean, it's, it's just tragic. I can't believe this is happening in our country.
we had a young woman from Arizona, and, and she had a small window of, uh, of time to get to us because she had a job and she had a child at home. And so our staff spent a couple hours finding the airfare uh, plan for her that would get her to us and, and back home in, in that window. And I just think of the stress that that must have been for her to make all of that work when, just like you know, in the other example, there are providers in her state who can do this and want to do this for her. Well, and the assumption about these individuals, these 100 women, is these are ones with resources. There's the ones that were stuck in all these other states with zero resources. They have no options. So that's there's a whole tier of assumptions about what is the capacity of somebody who has conceived to get whatever kind of care. Because the, these 100 women, could, there could be all kinds of reasons for that, as we've talked about. And I'd like, because you're the one, you're the chief operating officer, to talk about this kind of, there may be kind of a bottleneck of all the providers in California, they're delivering services, but there are professionals from out of state that need to keep getting trained on providing these services. So how are you dealing with that huge demand on the practitioners in California to service patients and providers out of state? Right, absolutely. Well, it definitely, you know, we've had to focus on our on our operations. And I can say that we're able to handle the demand, and I think the Planned wow. Parenthoods throughout California wow. are doing a great job uh, doing that. And, and we've been hiring providers. We've definitely staffed up to be able to do this. You know, the, the training aspect is a, is a really important one that you bring up. And, of course, I, as you mentioned at the top of your show, I, I was, um, for about 15 years, I worked at UCI in, the, in academic medicine, and, you know, I'm well aware of, of the training aspect and, and requirements for obstetricians and gynecologists. You know, and I've, I've continued now to work in this role, um, to work with the UCI School of Medicine and, and folks that are leading education efforts for the state, for the UCs. And I know that the UCs are working with Planned Parenthood and, and our state office to address this. You know, we're very concerned about so many trainees throughout the country that are not now going to have access to training for abortion care. But not only that, but even just basic um, uh, obstetrical and gynecologic care, you know, on how to handle, um, like, miscarriage management, for example. You've probably read the stories about physicians in, in states you know, like Wisconsin, where even the hospital lawyers don't know what to make of all of this and are directing physicians, you know, not to provide care when a woman presents to the emergency room, you know, having a miscarriage. And physicians are scared. They don't want to lose their license. And that has a domino effect on our training programs as well because then, you know, residents and fellows that are working in those states now don't have access to that type of just basic gynecologic care that, that they need that has nothing to do with abortion. So it is an issue, and it's something that I know the UCs are very focused on and are, are working on. We, at our affiliate here, we are accepting um, and training residents from other states, and we're really evaluating how we can increase our capacity to do more of that. 
Thank you for that. And you know I've got tons of questions that go to each one of your answers here. So I uh, <laughs> am making short shrift of this in the service of getting to covering as many topics. So, and just quickly, so the training involves nurses, physicians, assistants, physicians. Is there anybody else we got to think about? Yeah, I think that physicians, assistants, nurse practitioners, we, uh, we employ a lot of those, in, you know, at Planned Parenthood. And, uh, you know, in terms of the training for them, yes, they, they are also going to be impacted by this in other states. Um, it's not something that we have been working on, so I can't speak to that okay. you know, okay. specifically. Okay. Yeah. Well, that domino effect is just traumatizing. So Proposition 1 is on the California ballot. It's going to be covered a little bit more details, the nuts and bolts of it, in the second segment with the League of Women Voters person. And we've covered a little bit of that with uh, other nonprofit organizations. Is Prop 1 adequate, or will other legislation and protections be necessary in California for full array of services? So at PPOCC, we are very grateful to our allies in California who've garnered the support to put Prop 1 on the ballot in November. And it sounds like you're going to talk about it a little bit more later in, in yes. the show. Yes. It will amend the state constitution to explicitly prohibit yes. the state from denying or interfering with personal choices related to reproductive care. And we do feel that this will provide the long-lasting protection needed expressly stating a fundamental right to abortion in the state constitution will protect against potential future attacks at the federal level and from courts down the line. So if a future legislature took action to rescind the right to abortion, for example, it would take a constitutional amendment requiring a two-thirds vote of the legislature to place it on the ballot and would then require support of voters. So without Prop 1, a future legislature could simply amend state statutes with a simple right, majority vote. Right. So we are very, very optimistic about this proposition and, and hopeful that you know, voters in California will, will agree with us on, on the importance of, of passing that and protecting abortion rights and reproductive choice. It's not just about abortion. Yeah, and with the force of so many results, with special elections and the late primaries post-Dobbs, you have so much data about how to be confident about that. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I just, because I keep listening into seminars about this. So the future of access, you've talked about one ally. I listened to a pretty cool group last yesterday that talked about reproductive justice if, when, how group, and they're talking about reproductive defense funds that they're working on. So do you want to just give us a quick uh, list of, you know, allies that you're glad f that are working effectively with you? And then the last to tack on right after that is what everybody listening, what they can do to help. Yeah, well, the opposition is working hard on their ultimate goal of making a federal ban. And we know that that will not end abortion in this country. What will end is women's access to safe right, abortion right. care provided by trained medical professionals. So, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier, but it is, it's a really important point that we're already seeing a divide in this country in terms of who has access to abortion and who does not. And as you said, there's a lot of women that despite our best efforts to provide resources to them to come here, that's just not a reality for them. And that burden really does fall on lower income women and women of color. Um, and as more, there are more abortion restrictions in this country, that chasm will grow even further. So, you know, at Planned Parenthood, we are 
involved with a lot of organizations. You're right. There are a lot of groups doing a lot of really good work in this space. And uh, we have a state office, Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California, who is really dialed in to a lot of different groups. And so what can we do? Well, in our abortion aid work groups, I like to remind our team what Mr. Rogers said. When there is darkness in this world, look for the helpers. And we really, Claudia, we all can be helpers in this dark movement, dark moment in the, in the movement for, for reproductive justice. And the first thing is to vote. So as you said, the election is coming up November 8th, and it really is critical. Protecting access to abortion and contraception in California is very critical. And voting yes on Prop 1 is really one of the most important things we can do in California. So we cannot say it enough. Vote, 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 November 8th. And the second thing I really have been encouraging people is to talk to their friends and have those conversations with their friends. You know, this radio program is so important, and, and I thank you so much for having me on and giving me an opportunity to talk with you. But I was thinking about, you know, on June 24th, a friend of mine called. She sat and cried when the decision came down, and, and she called me. She knew that I would be equally upset, and she didn't know how her other friends would feel. So she called me, and I listened to her. And then I told her I was busy. I was busy helping these women in Arizona get to us that weekend, and I wasn't trying to be a bad friend. You know, but I just knew that we this moment was too big for us to stay in our safe zone. And I said, you, you, you need to reach out to your other friends. The majority of Americans are so upset about this decision. You have people in your life who agree with you. And we just can't be silent. We need to normalize this. We need to remember that abortion is basic health care. And we need to feel comfortable talking about it. And... It doesn't have to be confrontational. And then we need to ask our friends to join us in this fight Thank by you. voting for reproductive rights in November. So I value all that you, your whole organization is doing. Thank you for this time and going through this so quickly with me, Krista. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Claudia. My guest was Krista Hollinger, and she is the Chief Operating Officer of Planned Parenthood, Orange, and San Bernardino Counties. We'll be right back with Stephanie Campbell, League of Women Voters Speakers Bureau, about California's seven statewide propositions. Don't go away. Back to the show. My next guest is Stephanie Campbell speaking today in her capacity as the League of Women Voters Chairwoman of the Speakers Bureau. She'll be speaking about California's seven statewide ballot propositions. Stephanie is also a founding member of the Orange County Chapter of Americans United for Separation of Church and State and the current president of the chapter and a former member of the National Board of Trustees where she chaired the Governance Committee. In addition, Stephanie is the County Action Coordinator for Compassion and Choices. Prior to her contributions in these organizations, she's active with the ACLU in Southern California as both an officer on the Southern California Regional Council and certified speaker for ACLU on religious rights, reproductive rights, and gay rights. Stephanie has also served as board member of Planned Parenthood 
She's a tutor for illiterate adults through the Reed Orange County program, serves on the Board of Women Board of Orange County, as well as the Friends of Costa Mesa Libraries. She comes to us today from her home in Costa Mesa. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Stephanie Campbell. Thank you, Claudia. Well, first, just briefly, Stephanie, tell us about the purview of the League of Women Voters with endorsing measures and educating voters. So the League of Women Voters has two different roles. There is an educational role and an advocacy role. And in the past, we've combined those, but over the probably the past two or three election seasons, we have tried to separate those out. And today I'm working on behalf of the educational role where our goal is to provide understanding of the major public policy issues and help influence public policy through education. Our key is to encourage informed and active participation in government. And I'm gonna give a little plug that the League of Women Voters builds this Voters Edge website, which is an enormously helpful tool to connect people even with, you can even get a hold of candidates. You can see the endorsements, you can follow the money, you can cover so much. And I also wanna just give a plug to Cal Matters as another resource for voters to cover the November 8th general midterm election. So let's do a summary, starting with Proposition 1, which we've covered a little bit on a recent show uh, with the National Women's Political Caucus California chapter. Would you briefly talk about each of the propositions, starting with Proposition 1, Steph? Okay. So Proposition 1 is a legislature-proposed constitutional amendment, the goal of which is to codify Roe v. Wade's right to reproductive choice and abortion care. And it's more than just Roe v. Wade because it's also working to codify Griswold versus Connecticut, which is the right to contraception. And that was the Supreme Court's first major precedent on right to privacy. And the goal is that if this passes, it will prevail over any contrary federal law passed if and when the GOP comes into control of the White House and Congress. Okay, and that's Proposition 1. We'll talk a little bit more detail about the next two propositions, but the summary of Proposition 26 and 27, legalizing gambling in various ways. Okay, so Proposition 26 expands legal gambling in California, but only for those who are 21 or older and only on site. So you can't call in a bet and not be there in person. And the new sports betting is only at casinos on tribal land and the privately operated horse racing tracks in four counties, which are Orange, L.A. County, San Diego, and Alameda. And it also lets tribes add dice and roulette betting on site at their casinos. So in summary, the expansion of gambling in Prop 26 really focuses on being on site. Okay, thank you. And 27? And skipping to 27, this one expands gambling to any online device. It has been written and heavily financed by multinational sports betting corporations there is a percentage of net profit that would go to non-gaming Native American tribes and homelessness programs. Okay. 
We'll get back to that pairing later. Proposition 28, requiring funding for kindergarten through 12th grade art and music education. Yes. And the key for this proposition is that the money would come from the California General Fund and there would be no new taxes to support this proposition. So what's important to note is when California is flush, as we are now, there's no real issue in making this support. But if we get to a point where California does not have a lot of extra money in its coffers, they would still be obligated to fund the music education. And because it does not allow for any taxes, new taxes on this, some items in the budget would have to be given up in order to continue this funding. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Stephanie Campbell speaking today in her capacity as a volunteer for the League of Women Voters Speakers Bureau about the seven statewide propositions on the November 8th midterm general election ballot. We are now looking at and moving right along at Proposition 29 enacts staffing requirements, reporting requirements and ownership disclosure and closing requirements for chronic dialysis clinics throughout the state. And this is the third time that they have put a dialysis clinic measure on the ballot. It failed the first two times. And the keys are with these staffing requirements in terms of who, in fact, can staff a clinic. And one of the things that the role is to not require the physician to be on site and have physician's assistants working there, certain experienced nurses working there. And there's a big conflict between the union and the two major dialysis companies. And a lot of this is coming out over in the ads that you will see, you will find that there's a lot of issues around the dialysis initiative. But I just do want to say that what you see in the ads is an advertisement. It's paid for by someone and not necessarily reflective of the way that it would be. Of the patient's interest. Yes. Of that. So yes. this time it's the union versus management in only one, not two propositions. Before it was the union endorsed proposition and the dialysis the two enterprises that have like a 73% amount of the business around the state, they had their own separate proposition. This time it's it's the union and union kinds of affiliates that are supporting that. And it's a there's a very partisan kind of bias between the endorsements opposed and supporting. So it's different than the previous two election cycles because we're dealing with one only and not two. It may be harder to obscure the issues because there's only one to talk about that. So I'm not sure we'll need to say more about that later when we break down, unpack the proposition. But I guess I wanted to tighten that message in with what you're saying to that, Stephanie. So Proposition 30, increasing the tax on personal income above $2 million by 1.75%, dedicating revenue to zero emission vehicle projects and wildfire prevention programs. Yes, this is called the Clean Cars and Clean Air Act. And as you said, it is 
whether or not we should provide funding for these programs by increasing tax on personal income. And the proponents of this proposition are really pointing out to the issues around climate change. And we do have a very varied and volatile climate when you look up and down the state. Transportation is one of our largest sources of greenhouse gas. As everybody knows that there's now this uh, law in effect that will require only electric vehicles to be sold I believe it's in the next 10 years. And there are a lot of challenges to transitioning to electric vehicles. And part of this proposition is to overcome those challenges. And one way that they would like to do this is by providing to people much more education and information on how to do that. One of the things the proposition would do is it would establish the Clean Cars and Clean Air Trust Fund. And from that trust fund, there are going to be investments to reduce greenhouse emissions, both from transportation and wildfires, because resolving wildfire issues is a very difficult task. And we really have not put in the money and the effort that we need to do that. Difficult task, I guess, I'll just bracket in there, that difficult, there's so many agencies, there's so many measures of varying efficacy in dealing with that. So that's, a, it's a very unwieldy piece to put in there. While we're on Proposition 30, I want for you to, to talk to the, it's, a, it's acting as a bit of a carve out for one particular enterprise in the state, which is why people are responding the way they are about what they want to do with Proposition 30. Do you want to speak to that? So maybe we can finish off 30 while we're doing the summary. Sure. Um, so part of the issue is that Lyft and Uber are really a focus of this. And uh, the people that are opposing this are saying that this is a carve out for Lyft and they're going to get a lot of money in terms of supporting their electric vehicle program. And in fact, Lyft has already put in $15 million into this proposition. And Lyft is going to be required to increase its share of electric cars by 2030 and would benefit from rebate money. So there's this concern that the proposition is really about getting money to Lyft. And when I started reading a little bit about it, it, Stephanie, it just called up to me a comparable proposition maybe six years ago. Mr. Pickens wanted to get the statewide support and funding for his own windmill enterprise. Is it sort of functioning? Is it comparable to that kind of a proposition? I do believe that it is. Yes. And, you know, I, I want to point out to your listeners that the people that are opposing this are a very interesting group of people who do not normally work together. And that would be the Governor Newsom and the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. They normally do not come together on a proposition, but they're both opposing it, as is the Republican Party of California, while the Democratic Party of California is supporting it, which is, of course, Gavin Newsom's party. So this is a proposition of strange bedfellows. Yes. 
thank you for that coverage. I think we can leave that Proposition 30 there. Finally, in the list for the otherwise uh, short summaries is Proposition 31, upholding the ban on flavored tobacco sales. When I get into uh, double, triple negatives, I, I want to be really clear. The state legislature has passed a ban on flavored tobacco sales. This would keep that uh, law on the books. What do you want to say uh, beyond uh, in the summary? So this is a referendum, and it challenges the 2020 law, which prohibited the sale of flavored tobacco products. It's worth noting that that law has never gone into effect, and they are now waiting for what the voters decide to do with it this time around to see whether the law will go into effect or it will not go into effect. And one of the things that's important to note is that a yes vote means that you want the law to go into effect and a no vote would kill the law. And Stephanie, the tobacco sales, does that include vaping and would include menthol cigarettes? No, it does not currently include menthol cigarettes. It just includes vaping. That okay. is what the Senate Bill 793 is about. And it is similar to the ban that Massachusetts adopted, where they included flavored e-cigarettes and menthol cigarettes. And other states who've done it have done it with just the flavored tobaccos. And it's also interesting to note that currently there are counties in California that have some sort of ban on flavored tobacco products. But in 2009, federal law banned cigarettes with non-tobacco flavors, but have not banned them completely. So it's somewhat confusing about what's legal and what's not. And so the goal is to eliminate the flavored products and enhancers that are sold either in person or at vending machines. Okay. And I know we haven't talked about fiscal impacts of all of these I guess while I'd like to try to wrap up 31 before we open up the others in greater detail is that the fiscal impacts as the League of Women Voters looks at this and uh, looking at the state. Well, it comes le- from the legislative analysts. So. Legislative, thank you. And that by upholding the ban, uh, do they pick up on the public health cost savings by making the flavored tobacco sales introducing that product more difficult. So there is an earlier adoption of flavored tobacco products by younger demographics. So what the legislative analyst office is saying, if it passes, revenue would be decreased somewhere between tens of millions to $100 million each year. And they note that in 2020, the amount of money raised on tobacco taxes in California was $2 billion. So it you know, it's a, it's a huge amount of money. And those tobacco tax revenues are currently used to fund 56% of health care, 21% of early childhood programs, and 12% of tobacco control. And then there's 4% for medical research. It is assumed that many of the users of the flavored products will switch to non-flavored And if the federal government enacts a federal ban on menthol cigarettes, which apparently it is considering doing, then the revenue loss 
would be less. Okay. So the public health formula is complicated because of the tax revenue from tobacco sales in general goes to support some public health costs, but it's still, it seems like an open-ended kind of a calculation is that it is, it is. Uh, You know, in recent years, the Legislative Analyst Office has been more and more vague about how much something is going to impact the budget if it passes, because, you know, as they will tell you, we really don't know. And we don't know how many people are going to do X because of Y. So it's very hard to predict. Right. And like you've talked about substitutions, we don't know what substitutions are going to be a factor. So that is admittedly super murky. Well, all right. Thank you for going through those pretty fast. I'd like for you to open up in greater detail how propositions 26 and 27, what kinds of complications they could pose with the legalization in the betting in those two separate forms and the beneficiaries of both of those propositions. Okay. So as I said before, Proposition 26 is about legalizing sports betting in person, and it is officially called the Legalized Sports Betting on American Indian Lands Initiative. The way it is now, California bans sports betting, roulette, and dice games In 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned federal bans on sports betting, but it never got legalized in California. So in addition to all of that, roulette and dice games are illegal at the tribal casinos. So what Proposition 26 would do is legalize the sports betting at the gaming casinos. It would define sports betting as wagering on professional college or amateur athletic events. But this initiative is specifically stating that it would not include sports betting on either high school sports or any kind of sports that included a California college team. Only California college team. Well, okay. It could be somebody else. but It could be somebody else. Yes. And there are certain sovereign American Indians that would benefit this from this, not all American Indian. That uh, is true. The, the benefit would be for those tribes that have tribal casinos. There are a number of tribes that do not, and they would not benefit from this. So there is going to be a conversation in the final laps of the, the general election is between those different sovereign jurisdictions. The, there's the, the winners and the not winning anything. Tribe. Well, that is true. And also there is this feeling that the tribes that do not have casinos are going to be supporting Proposition 27, which we'll talk about in a minute. So there's lots of conflicts here. The budget Im- impacts are increased state revenues from payments by sports wagering facilities. There also would be new civil penalties so that if they were gambling but violated this, there would be penalties. At the same time, there are going to be increased regulatory costs as the state is going to have to monitor this. So they're going to have to monitor the regulation. They're going to have to have to do enforcement. It is expected by the legislative analysts that some or all of the costs would be covered by increased revenue 
or reimbursement. But again, no one knows for sure. So the supporters of this are 24 American Indian tribes, including local tribes like the Morongo and Pachanga tribes. And then there's a coalition that calls themselves the Yes on 26, No on 27 Coalition for Safe, Responsible Gaming. And I just need to say here that so far they have raised close to $75 million, the people that are supporting this proposition. So you can see that there's a huge amount of money going on here. And with a month and a half to go, folks, that we project that this is not the end of the heavy spending. It sort of it gets exponential. So that's $75 million and counting. So just want that to put is that true. there, too. Okay. And on the opposition side, they've raised about $45 million. And the key opponents are six casinos and gaming establishments and two unions. So you can see that there's a huge amount of money riding on Proposition 26. So Proposition 27 is called the Legalized Sports Betting and Revenue for Homelessness Prevention Fund Initiative. I should say that people who have looked into this are saying that the amount of revenue that is going to go into the Homelessness Prevention Fund is probably going to be pretty small. And that they titled it this way to attract more voters. But people shouldn't focus on the homelessness so much as what's in the proposition. So the basic question for this one is, should we allow online and mobile sports betting? And that it's already come to my, I mean, I'm hearing voters talking about, does this open up a huge hazard of people are clicks away from actually the irony here that of being homeless, that so many assets can move very quickly online. That is correct. That is, that is definitely one of the key oppositions to this. So if this one passed, it would establish a state-regulated online sports gambling platform, which would be done in partnership with either a gaming tribe or a qualified gaming company. There would be, on the revenues that were earned, there would be a 10% tax, and 85% of the money from taxes and fees would go to the California Solutions to Homelessness and Mental Health Support Account, and the remaining 15% to the Tribal Economic Development Account. Now, the people that are opposing this are saying that there's going to be some very, very fancy tax work that is going to limit the amount of taxes that they really have to pay and that would really go to homelessness. So you can take that for what it's worth. And the other thing that would be created with this proposition is a new division in the Department, the California Department of Justice for online sports betting control. Budget impact, the estimate is that there could be hundreds of millions of new revenue each year. And that would be balanced with increased costs, but the increased costs would be at a much lower rate. And it's expected that any costs that would be incurred would be fully offset by the increased revenues. That's uh, the public budget. It's the private budgets that <laughs> that are where one's attention could be directed here. With 
That is absolutely correct. And so far, the Proposition 27 supporters have raised over $100 million in support of this. And it's raised by a coalition of sports book companies. They are the top three donors. The opposition to this has raised over $115 million. So huge amounts of money in, in these two propositions. And the opponents, again, it's interesting that both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are opposed to this. Obviously, the unions that are supporting 26 are, are opposing this. And, you know, it's going to be a lot more money before November 8th. A lot more. And as you've mentioned in other forms, I've heard you present these propositions that the author of the titles of propositions are the vested interest in putting this on the ballot. So it's not a neutral party that's calling it this elaborate title that it has. Right. So while we're still talking about 26 and 27, I want to do a quick comparison between the two and talk about what happens if you vote for one and not for the other and, and how that works. So... Proposition 26 was initiated by Casino Indian Tribes. It allows for in-person sports betting on tribal lands, and a percentage of the profits go to the general fund. Proposition 27 was initiated by major sports book, non-gaming tribes. Online sports betting over the internet outside of tribal lands would be allowed, and 85% of the taxes to fund homelessness and 15% to non-gaming tribes. So if both Propositions 26 and 27 pass, it's possible that both of them will take effect. And in fact, when they wrote Proposition 27 within the proposition, it states that it is not in conflict with Proposition 26. So if a court were to find that parts of the proposition are in conflict, the one that got the most votes would in fact become law, but it is not expected that they will look at them as as conflicting propositions so that both could go into effect. So is League of Women Voters aware of, is there out of state kinds of contributions that are participating in, in this? I would say that in certainly in 27, there's out of state money. And in fact, if you look through all of the propositions, there's usually out of state money for all of them. Okay. Okay. So it's either or, all or nothing. Those are the choices. That's right. 26 and 27. Yes. Okay. That's a new game. (laughs) We've pretty much covered 28 already of the aspects that I don't know if you needed to add more than what we had covered in the summary the K through 12 art and music education proposition 28. Do we have more to add to that or did you pretty much? I do have one thing more to add to that in that the way it is now in 1988, we passed proposition 98 and that amended the constitution to require a minimum percentage of the state budget to be spent on K through 14 education. And that funding has not really worked because it required local governing boards to certify what their schools spent on arts and education, and they didn't do that. And so now in this new proposition, that is going to be a requirement that they document and clarify how the money is being spent. Unfinished business then, because we have seen 98 not get its full due despite the the statewide support. 
Okay. We covered pretty much 29. Did you have more to add to that? No, I okay. did not. So I think we pretty much covered the remaining 29, 30, and 31 by a little more expanded discussion of that. Uh, can I add one more thing? So okay. I, I want to encourage people to look at the Easy Voter Guide, which they can get online at easyvoterguide.org. And also the link to Voters Edge is votersedge.org. Thank you. And the Cow Matters, I'm going to toss in that resource as well there. So I really thank you, Steph Campbell, for speaking today as a League of Women Voters Speakers Bureau goddess, I'm going to say, because this is a huge service covering these seven statewide propositions on November 8th. Thank you for your time today. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Claudia. Well, that's my wrap. Next week's guests include Orange County's newish registrar voters, Bob Page, for my ritual coverage of election logistics as vote-by-mails will be shipping their way to Californian homes. We'll also hear from Irvine City Council candidate Scott Hansen. Next up is SoCal Nueva with his Pass Forward. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Register and confirm your registration.